He is risen. risen Amen. Um, You've heard me say this already, and I will say it again, that Easter is not just a single day, right? Not just a day to dress up nice, to go to church, to hunt for eggs stuffed with candy, and then after finding them, stuff yourself with that candy. Uh, It's not just a single day, but rather a season of seven weeks spent celebrating the resurrection and not only rejoicing in the reality of resurrection, but also marveling at the mystery of the resurrection. After all, something as grand and unexpected as life coming out of death takes some time to digest. It takes some time to process such an unexpected thing. And so today is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and we're still celebrating, and we're still marveling. It's, it's been about a month since we got back from Texas after my mother's death. Last Sunday, Mother's Day, was actually one month since her passing. And tomorrow will be one month since her memorial service. Uh, but after Caitlin and I returned, one of the sweetest things uh, was finding a small stack of cards in the mail from friends and family expressing love and sympathy during this time. And as we opened the cards, something surprising emerged that I previously had no idea was a thing. Because about half of the sympathy cards that we got had butterflies on the front of them. Now, I I haven't gone to test this theory and like look through the sympathy section, but it just seemed interesting to me half of them had butterflies on them. What are the odds of this, right? And so as we opened them and set them out, our home slowly began to be filled with butterflies. And then I was up here in the office, and I looked out there, and those of you, some of you can actually look straight out through the doors. There's this poster of butterflies right there, and I I ran into that one day. I was like, what? More butterflies. They're everywhere, right? Okay, And then, you know, about a week after getting back, we headed back down, went down to Pepperdine, and I told you guys about that last couple weeks ago. And while we were at Pepperdine, it it is butterfly season. There are butterflies fluttering around the campus, but, but not just the campus. One afternoon, Caitlin and I went up to a place called Heroes Garden, and it's this area that is at one of the highest points on the campus, and it looks down over the whole campus, and you can see the ocean. And while we were standing there, uh, not just with this amazing view, not just among these sort of bushes and flowers and things, uh, but there are butterflies just flying all around us. It was stunning. Every step we took, a new wave of them would rise up and and fly around us. It was way better than any butterfly enclosure I have ever been to. Uh, It was incredible. And so from the cards and the mail to the poster out there to this mountaintop experience, butterflies have been on my mind a lot lately. And it turns out they really are a wonderful picture of resurrection during this season of Easter. Just think about it. They start out as a caterpillar, right? And I mean, if you know the story, very hungry caterpillar, 
they emerge, and they're very hungry, right? And they eat, and they eat, and they eat, until finally they spin themselves into a cocoon like a little tomb, out of which they emerge radiant and new. And it really is this picture of resurrection, but it is more than just that one way, because not only does a caterpillar transform into a butterfly, but the way that it happens is really mysterious. Hey, I was reading an article about this, and, and get this, if, if you don't know this, when a caterpillar wraps itself up in its cocoon or, or chrysalis, what happens next is that that caterpillar actually dissolves into a sort of mushy, goopy substance. And, and I was reading this article. It says, at the right time, if you cut open the chrysalis, then caterpillar soup spills out. I mean, that is just what is going on in there. And somehow, over the course of time, this mushy goop reforms into a butterfly. That's crazy, right? That, that, is, that doesn't make any sense. And from what I was reading, those scientists can explain a little bit of this. It involves some special kind of cells that are called imaginal disks, which sounds imaginary. Uh, a lot of it, though, remains a mystery because they can't really observe what's going on inside of that chrysalis. And so this process is beautiful, it's transformative, but it's also mysterious. And this is what the resurrection is like. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Today we'll be finishing up this chapter that we've been in for the past few weeks. And the whole chapter is about resurrection. So if you're turning there, I'll, I'll go ahead and review a little bit. The chapter opened with Paul reminding the Corinthian church about the story of resurrection, that Jesus died and was buried, and that he was raised and was seen by many people. And he insists that this story is central to our faith. But then a problem arises. And in the next section of the chapter, Paul addresses some people who are saying that there won't be a resurrection. And so Paul begins to explain the logic of resurrection. He says, no, if Christ was raised, then we will be raised. And then in the next section, he describes what that resurrection will be like. And he uses some metaphors saying that our current bodies are like a seed that will grow into the great plant of our resurrected bodies, right? And and maybe he could have used the metaphor of the butterfly as well, right? And then finally, in this last section, Paul sets aside all the logic and the metaphors and the explaining in order to simply share and marvel at the mystery of the resurrection. So let's read. We're beginning in verse 50. Hear the word of the Lord. What I am saying Brothers and sisters, is this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, and I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the good news of your resurrection and for the opportunity to marvel at its mystery. I pray that as we reflect on this text, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in this passage... Paul is marveling at the mystery of resurrection. And after telling the story of the resurrection, arguing the logic of the resurrection, and explaining the body of the resurrection, all of this culminates in the mystery of the resurrection and marveling at it. And this is challenging because we really like narratives. We're pretty good at arguments And we really like explanations. But pausing to marvel at something is difficult. An article that I read this past week was talking about some of the reasons why we often resist resurrection. And one of the ones that was listed was because resurrection is out of our control. Take that image of the seed, right? We can bury the seed in soil. We can add water and fertilizer. But ultimately, we cannot make that seed grow. It's out of our control. Resurrection is like this, too. It's out of our control. Ultimately, resurrection is an act of God. And I think this is what Paul means when he uses the word mystery. In fact, Paul uses the language of mystery quite a bit throughout his letters, and it usually refers to some kind of divine act, something that God has done or is doing. So this is what we see in our passage today. Resurrection is a mystery, an act of God. And throughout the passage, we see that it brings about a number of things. It brings about transformation. It brings about victory. And it brings about purpose for our own work. And all of these are essentially acts of God. So I want to wrestle with the mystery 
of each of these this morning, each in turn. So first is transformation. All right, look back at verse 51. He writes, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The resurrection means a fundamental transformation. And this is something that we've talked about a little bit over the past few weeks, right? Through the resurrection, God transforms death into life. Through the resurrection, God transforms perishable bodies into imperishable bodies. But God is after more than this, right? He is ultimately after the transformation of our hearts. And yet, unlike the twinkling of an eye described here, our hearts can be very slow to change. And we often prefer superficial improvement over deep transformation. Have any of you ever watched that show, Extreme Home Makeover? Yeah? Pretty popular. They're still doing reruns of it because it's so loved. Uh, And it's a show where they go in, they do a makeover on someone's house, and the episodes are always filled with these heartwarming stories of families and communities. And then it always ends with the big reveal at the end, right? They have that bus lined up right outside the house, everyone's standing behind that bus, and then they say, move that bus, then the bus drives away, and there it is, you know, this amazing made-over house, and the credits roll, and everyone is happy. Except that, fast forward several months, many of the families who've experienced this end up foreclosing on their made-over homes, because they can't afford the upkeep, they can't afford the new increased taxes on their bigger house. There was sort of a real-life version of this uh, that happened here in the Northwest. Caitlin and I were having dinner with a friend this past week who does a lot of work bringing old houses up to code in the case of earthquakes, right? And one of the things he does is he essentially goes and bolts down a house onto its foundation to keep it from shifting off in the case of an earthquake. And he told us a story about one of the strangest things he'd ever experienced kind of early on in his career. He was down in the basement of this really beautiful little home that a couple had recently bought. And and he was looking for the right place to, you know, put in those bolts and secure everything. And he just couldn't make sense of things. So he called his supervisor and he says, you know, I, I don't... I don't know what's going on. Something seems wrong. And the supervisor says, well, you keep looking, you'll find it. But after a while, he calls again and he says, no, something is really strange here. I think you need to come look. And so the supervisor drives out and comes and looks and immediately went up to talk to the couple who had bought the house. Because it turns out that the previous owner had purchased it and flipped the house, and then resold it for a lot more money. They updated the aesthetics, made it look really lovely. But the house didn't have a foundation. It was just sitting on some some little wooden boards, and that was it. So it was a scam. And this couple ultimately had to basically 
completely destroy the house and rebuild it from the ground up. So whether it's extreme home makeover, a shady house scam, or really any other reality TV show that we might tune into that's going on, okay, we can see that we have this propensity towards exterior change rather than real transformation. There's a book I was reading recently that put it this way. We want a spirituality of improvement rather than a spirituality of transformation. But the death and the resurrection of Jesus calls us to true and deep transformation, not just exterior improvement. And this kind of deep transformation is ultimately a mystery, right? It is ultimately an act of God. And it's often slow going because our hearts can be really stubborn and our efforts feel futile. And that is just it. That is just what happens because when we try to change ourselves, we fail. So the mystery of transformation is this. We need to stop trying to change ourselves and instead let God act. Rather than enforcing religious rules that only bring about superficial improvements, we ought to cultivate sacred rhythms that allow the love of God to wash over us and transform us We need to let God lead us into the mystery of the resurrection. And this will transform, this will change all of our prayer and Bible study, our service and our worship into moments of transformation. It changes them from just self-improvement checklists to places of divine encounter, to transformation. So transformation is an act of, of God. It's a mystery. And next, Paul writes about victory as an act of God. Look in verse 54. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this one seems pretty straightforward in a lot of ways. Of course, victory is an act of God. But where is the mystery in it? Well, the mystery is in the fact that victory is not as simple as we would all like for it to be. Right? We like victory to look like our fairy tales, where the good guy wins, the couple falls in love, and then they ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. You can even think of, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the Lord of the Rings, where in one scene, there's this dark battlefield where they're fighting it out outside of Gondor, this, you know, the last movie. And then after that great struggle, scene cut, go to the next scene, and the sun is shining, and they're all gathered around, and Aragorn's being crowned king, and everyone's applauding and celebrating, right? But victory is so much more complicated than that. I was actually reading this part of the book 
this weekend. And after that great battle, one of the leaders looks out over the battlefield and he says, things of great sorrow and renown have come to pass. So shall we weep or be glad? Beyond hope, the captain of our foes has been destroyed. You have heard the echo of his last despair, but he has not gone without woe and bitter loss. You see, even though there was victory, there was also great loss. So even amidst a victory, there is grief and there is lament. And this is what the mystery of resurrection shows us, that victory of life comes through death. Victory is more complicated than a happy ending. Resurrection is more mysterious than that. So we might wonder, you know, if resurrection is true, then then why is life still so hard? so often. And this is another thing about victory, the mystery of its timeline. Let me show you what I mean by that. When was Jesus raised? In the past, all right? When are we going to be raised? In the future. We live in between these two victorious moments. Jesus has been raised victorious, but we are still awaiting that final victory. Our present victory looks a lot more like the mix of joy and sorrow on that battlefield than the easy ending of happily ever after. This victory is already. It has already happened. But... It's also not yet. We're still waiting for it to happen. Look back at the beginning of verse 54. It says, When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Right? So we are still awaiting this fulfillment. This scripture is a powerful one to be read at funerals and in the face of death. You know, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But amidst the sobs and tears of grieving friends and family at a funeral, there's a really clear answer to those questions. Where is your sting? Right here. Right here is where the sting of death is. It's right here among us as we grieve. Those who we've lost, it's right here among us as we face hardships. It's right here as we struggle with sin. The sting of death is here. And the good news is not that we don't feel that sting. The good news is that there's coming a day when we're victorious over it. Victory lies in the past, and victory lies in the future. And in the present, 
We follow God as he leads us into this mystery of resurrection through our Lord Jesus Christ. So transformation is a mysterious act of God. And victory is a mysterious act of God. And in the final verse of our passage, Paul says that our own work is also a mysterious act of God. Look at verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I want to ask you, what does a typical week look like for you? I once heard a comedian joke about the typical flow of a person's week. On Friday, they clock out of work with energy and anticipation, woohoo, you know, going into the weekend. And then on Monday, they roll back into work with eyes glazed over, just facing another dull week. And the joke is that our work is boring, our work is exhausting. And our work is ultimately meaningless, without any purpose. But that's not what Paul says here, is it? Paul refers to the work that we do as the work of the Lord. And he says that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So I want you to think about your week. Where are you going to be tomorrow at 10 a.m.? What will you be doing on Wednesday at noon? How are you going to feel on Friday at 5 o'clock? Right? Whether your week is spent at an office desk, out in the yard, at home, or in a classroom, do you see all of that time as of the Lord, as Paul says here? Or is it just boring, tiring, and meaningless? You see, the mystery of the resurrection says that Jesus rose in the past and we will be raised in the future and therefore the present is filled with meaning. To put it another way, if Jesus was raised yesterday and we will be raised tomorrow, then the work we do today really matters. It is the work of the Lord. Hear these words of Paul. Your labor is not in vain. You see, he does not only make our perishable bodies imperishable, but he also makes our momentary work eternal. I think this is why our scriptures begin with a garden and end with a city. The work that we've done in between actually matters. It actually lasts. It's not meaningless. And this is a mystery. It's ultimately an act of God through us. 
God transforms our meager efforts into occasions for his glory. So tomorrow at 10, Wednesday at noon, Friday at 5, remember this, your labor is not in vain. The mystery of the resurrection transforms even that. So where do we go from here? Right? I've got to admit that it's hard to send you off with practical applications for mystery. Mystery feels a little bit more like a cloud or a fog or that soupy stuff inside of a cocoon than it does feel like something solid that we can walk out of here with. But what I will send you with is this. Whether it is the instantaneous transformation at the end or the slow transformation over a lifetime, right? Whether it's the challenge and grief of life or the wonderful victory of God, whether it is Monday morning or Friday afternoon, God is at work. God is with you. And so in all that we do, may we marvel at this mystery that he is risen. Amen.